Good evening. Uh, welcome to the National Academy Museum. I'm Marshall Price. I'm curator of modern and contemporary art here. And um, this is the opening salvo in the ninth season of the review panel here at the Academy that we are presenting uh, collaboratively with artcritical.com. Um, before I introduce our moderator this evening, I would like to draw your attention to a couple upcoming public programs that we have. Uh, this week, there are two. Um, on Wednesday, we will have uh, architect and MacArthur fellow Jeannie Gang in conversation with architecture critic Paul Goldberg. And on Friday, uh, as part of John Cage, The Site of Silence, we will have Margaret Leng Tan, who is one of the foremost toy pianists in the world, uh, giving a concert in this very room. So um, please, you can look on our website to find more information, and I hope that you all will uh, join us for those. On your way out, if you'd like, you can grab um, uh, public program brochure for John Cage, The Site of Silence. We have some uh, 18 public programs in conjunction with the exhibition, so it's a varied uh, and frequent um, program of events. The review panel is made possible by uh, DCA and uh, New York State Council on the Arts, so we're very, very grateful for them and their continued support. Now to introduce the moderator of the review panel, David Cohen. David is the editor and publisher of artcritical.com, and we're very happy once again to embark on the ninth season of the review panel with David. David, please. Thank you very much, Marshall and, and Carmen and all the staff here at the National Academy that make this event smooth and efficient and possible. And it's, it's a joy to be here to start the ninth year, ninth year of Art Critical, uh, sorry, ninth year of the review panel. And to also share with you uh, what is for me and uh, I hope all of us uh, an exciting departure in that Art Critical is now also partnering with the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts in Philadelphia to launch the review panel Philadelphia. Uh, four times a year, starting October 17th, in a panel that features Edward Epstein, Edith Newhall, and Lily Way. So um, if you find yourself in the city of brotherly love in the next few weeks, join us for more there. And of course, a whole star-studded season here at the National Academy, um, running through the year. So the review panel, who is new to the review panel? Who is here for the first time? Marvelous, great. So let me explain the format, which is simplicity itself. We've all, certainly we all on the panel, and hopefully some of you in the audience too, have all been to see four current art exhibitions in New York City. I've prepared, we have prepared, my able assistant actually has prepared, um, a wonderful PowerPoint presentation that gives us a quick visual reminder of what we've seen. Of course, a poor substitute for the sublime experience of seeing the work in person, but always good to have a quick visual refresher. I, we project two of the shows we're looking at. We, the panel, uh, debate them one by one. Uh, we take a little time for the audience to let off steam and share their insights, and if they feel they need to ask a question 
of about what we've said about those two exhibitions, and then we repeat the exercise. Now it's my great pleasure to introduce this evening's guests. From your right, Marjorie Wellish, uh, artist and critic. She's had recent shows in New York, Philadelphia, and at the Denison University Museum in Granville, Ohio. Uh, Marjorie is a very prolific writer and theorist. Her work, she is the author of a book, Signifying Art, Essays on Art After 1960, um, and she has written for Art in America, Art Monthly, Bomb Magazine, Book Forum, and Textual Practice, among many other publications. Ariella Budik is an art critic based in New York. Since 2008, she has been art critic of the Financial Times. And Roberta Smith is co-chief art critic of the New York Times. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. Wonderful. Now we're going to have a look at the first couple of shows. If we could dim the lights, perhaps a somewhat anal retentive division of the exhibitions with the, the patterns and stripes and uh, rectangles first and the more complex imagery uh, or representations for later in the evening. A thought that occurs to me is that there's quite a trend among uh, fashion houses. Armani comes to mind after years of establishing themselves through uh, clothing and uh, their cloth in particular, uh, they venture into, say, Armani Casa and offer us furniture. Here with um, Andrew Zittel, it seems to be the traffic in the opposite direction, an artist best known for her um, explorations of uh, sculpture that uh, explores ideas of uh, furniture and utility, um, now going to the, the two-dimensional, whether on the floor or the wall, and uh, giving us a lot of uh, fabric. Um, Roberta, if I can put the question to you um, and see if you share my feeling here. I've been uh, a fan, to some degree, of uh, Zittel's three-dimensional work and her explorations of systems and um, utilities and uh, sort of her speculations into the future uh, in, in, the, in the shape and form of sculptural objects. I'm left a little bewildered by the current body of work. Um, it's nice to see somebody who has established a, a trademark preoccupation venture into a new domain, but does this new domain really command our attention and fill the gallery? Well, first of all, David, it's not at all new. She's been in, always been involved with fashion and textiles from the beginning. But it's, have we seen a whole show in this way devoted with work without any three-dimensional object? Maybe, maybe not. I don't quite remember. I, I mean, some of the things that I've liked best about her work have been, have been textiles. I remember a, a, a big throw that was velvet on one side and wool on the other with orange or red borders, kind of black, gray versus black, that I thought was an amazing object. Um, so I don't think this is totally a new direction, although, you know, to some degree it is. I, I do think the, the hand weaving in particular um, what made it somewhat new. I, um, 
I don't know. She always has sat on the border between design and art, and she's never really quite committed to either. And I'm always, except for isolated objects, I'm always more interested in the kind of larger enterprise and the intent. I found this show kind of bland. And I would love to have seen them at, you know, a regular furniture store. But I really, I, there's so many great textiles that have so much more pictorial power than these, um, starting with the Navajos, that um, I really felt like, you know, that I was disappointed. I mean, and, and you know, these things cost about $40,000. And I just find that kind of bothersome. Yes. Uh, I said I found the show a, a bit bland and that it doesn't measure up to Navajo textiles, which it departs from. And some of the ones on the busiest wall, some of them were bags and some of them were tops. And I'm completely interested in her idea of fashion, but I also think her fashions tend to look best on her. <laughs> so Yes, she's, she's fetching, but then there are other fetching people. Um, well, she wears everything she wears, pretty much all of her clothes are hers. Yes. Um, but presumably the price tag and the fact that they're here at the Andrea Rosen Gallery rather than, um, as you say, at a furniture store means that um, conceptually there must be something more to this than there is to, say, the sublime works of the, the Navajo Indians or, or, of, um, or of Annie Albers. Um, Marjorie, um, do, you, do you see and savor a conceptual underpinning to this body of work? Um, earlier in her uh, young career, someone who was writing a PhD on her was interviewing her, and in the course of that, she said uh, that she had decided not to go into design um, uh, owing to ma the responsibilities of mass production. I'm going to jump off from that, if I may. Um, somewhat agreeing with Roberta, but I'm going to take a different slant. If one goes to that exhibition expecting design, one is disappointed um, for a number of reasons. Design is extremely com uh, an extremely complex nexus of art and engineering in whatever um, uh, commodity one wishes, from materials to their relations to their use to cultural history to style, the, whether Zetel's remark was a defensive posture or a realistic assessment of the limits of her ability, I think it's better to go visiting that show with a sense that she is, as a, uh, a graduate of the California system, tutored in conceptual frameworks wherein the studio practice becomes the life practice. Now, from that point of view, that show looks better, from the trial and error point of view. And I actually said to her, um, I think there is a question about whether this is design or not. I think the show is unclear about its intentionalities. But I want to say one more thing, if I, if I may if you don't mind. Please. Um, one thing I think the show is very clear on is the principle that uh, Frederick Kiesler called versatility. 
which happens to be a buzzword circa 1950. Um, Post-World War II, it was considered a virtue to be able to do many things with one thing. And that a piece of cloth as a protagonist of the show, and that you can put it on the wall and on the floor, on the bed, wrap it around yourself, is very clear. That's the one thing that I found. Yes. Okay. Well, that's, I, I think uh, versatility is, is, should be uh, a virtue like economy that uh, transcends any uh, time period. I mean, uh, whatever the degree of specialism that uh, any art form accrues. And I totally reject any kind of snobbery about, uh, say, clothing or fabric being somehow uh, inherent. I think it's probably sexist to, to think that it's... Uh, a lesser vehicle than um, paint splattered canvas uh, in a frame. But I don't think many of these designs really hold up as, as uh, transcendent abstract compositions. Would you disagree, Ariella? Well, I, I, um, I just wanted to sort of address both things. That, um, I agree with Roberta initially that I was sort of struck by the blandness of the show. The colors were kind of dull and the design didn't seem that sophisticated. But the conceptual under subtext of it, I did find interesting. And the more time I spent there, the more it had me thinking. And then the more I was thinking, the more I appreciated the works. I spent a long time there sort of wandering around and thinking about it. And it seemed to me that she she raises this question, what's more valuable? It's sort of about the nature of the commodity or of art as a commodity. What's more valuable, a work of craft or an artwork? And especially in the current art market, um, where things are so ridiculously expensive, you know, if you hang it on a wall, does that make it more valuable than if it's something that you walk across on the floor? And um, I wondered, I mean, it, it raised the question in my mind whether if it's on the floor, does it cost less than if it's hanging on the wall? I mean, she raises the question, and then she sort of leaves it hanging there, and you sort of wonder, <laughs> you know, if it's about value, then what is the value? They don't advertise the prices. I didn't know how much they cost. Well, I it's asked. interesting. I don't um, ask. And I thought, you know, she's somebody who's so into functionality. I mean, all of her her clothing is made to be worn. Her, mm-hmm. her you know, house, her she made all these furnishings meant to be used. And here she's sort of balancing use and, you know, decoration or, you know, something even more sublime. Yes. And, you know, but she doesn't, she sort of raises the questions, but then she doesn't really answer what she thinks is more valuable and should her work really be in a gallery at all or does she really want it to be sold in a, in a furniture store or, mm-hmm. you know... Well, the, uh, presumably the, the, the answer that Marjorie reports that she gave to a researcher that she didn't want to be involved with the banalities and compromises of manufacture. She wanted to generate unique pieces because of artistic control would kind of answer that in one way. But I would also suggest, panel, uh, or, that um, it would be interesting to compare the status of these objects to, say, the jewellery or uh, applied arts of Alexander Calder, who would seem to uh, be to epitomise that mid-century moment um, of versatility that uh, Frederick Kiesler is quoted as 
as, as um, uh, promoting, because um, with Calder, yes, his sensibility is equally in a, a dual or a mobile, but we have a, a sense of one being one thing and one being um, another. It seems once we get to Andrea Zittel, we're dealing, uh, the artist has become, the status of the artist has, has evolved uh, or devolved into something that where the celebrity and intentionality of the artist is, is uh, at a very different state than it might have been at earlier historic moments. So that, um, you know, uh, a Zittel carpet isn't judged and compared to other carpets. It's a Zittel, and Zittel is a fine artist. Therefore, her carpet really, it's, a, it's almost an exercise in relational aesthetics. It, her, she has her carpet. Uh, Tiravanit has his pad thai. Um, but it's not to be judged to, uh, you know, this one's carpet or the local Sri Siam's pad thai, obviously. It's but you not could what say about. that about Calder's jewelry as well. The difference would be that you can actually tell when you're looking at a piece of Calder's jewelry, whereas a Zatel could be put next to a really nice carpet from ABC Carpet, and you would be, you would have to, yes, be harder. But I mean, I do, I do think there's an element of branding here, and and although, and and the idea, what I say about how her clothes look best on her, I mean, she's an amazing presence. I I, I don't think it's anything new in a way. I think that. She's becoming something like our O'Keefe, you know. She's mm -hmm. she's in the desert. She's making these things, and there's a whole kind of aura around them. I do think that um, you know versatility is an interesting concept, but it's not just. I mean, Navajo blankets had that exact same versatility, so I wouldn't wouldn't necessarily just attach it to an idea in the 50s. Mm. I mean, that's a it's a kind of basic design concept that she goes back to. Uh, and it's very uh, kind of Bauhausian mm. as well, uh, I would of think. Of course, of course. I raised Kiesler because, well, she just got a Kiesler prize. Um, <laughs> uh, but but a, and, and, and it, it, that's, that's just pure contingency. But it, it, the, the word versatility was a buzzword in the 50s. I'm not talking about origins, Roberta. It was a buzzword in the 50s, post-World War II, yeah. when um, America... Um, tried out a, a, a modern concept by disseminating it to the housewives. You know, you could wear right. your wrap inside out, upside down, etc. Uh, and, and but all I'm saying is that I think that that idea of versatility as, a, as that from that period is more implicit in her design objects where things where you have a space that has multiple purposes or objects that have multiple purposes. What? But mm. all I'm saying is that this really has a much more ancient source and there's a whole there's a whole way in terms of the weaving and the material that she's attaching these works to, to a kind of southwestern ethos, um, really. It, well, indeed. And I don't An American think that, Indian. I don't think they're contradictory, actually. But no, I would, I would say no, I don't. I don't. we, we would surely want to make a distinction, however, between the object being versatile and uh, the artist's project being, the artist mm -hmm. being versatile. Mm -hmm. and I, I think... Mm -hmm. uh, Kiesler's oh, comment sorry. is really more in, in relation to the artist. That's why I brought right. up Calder, because it's, it, Calder's mm -hmm. got one aesthetic, mm -hmm. and his aesthetic permeates his jewelry and his mobiles. Uh, or another way of looking at it is uh, uh, Andrea Zittel is Joseph plus Annie. Um, but Joseph and Annie have such different um, 
energies in their work. I, I, I think that Annie's, Alba's um, designs are utterly exquisite and, and almost peerless. Um, Joseph Albers is not my f personal favorite abstract painter. And yet, if you put an Annie Albers cloth next to a, a Joseph Albers painting, you wouldn't just say, oh, well, just compare them as design. No, because one is design and the other isn't. The other is uh, a visual exploration. But can I just, I'm wondering when we talk about design, are we talking about, I mean, or she just declining to pursue a, a career as a designer? Whether we're talking about a mass-produced object, or you know, produ you know, producing something on a large scale and sort of figuring out the manufacturing and the distribution and all of that, or designing a single object, a unique object, mm -hmm. those seem like two completely different things to me. Because, mm -hmm. you know, a Navajo blanket is mm -hmm. a one singular object. You know, here it's something in between because she she has the concept, she farms it out to weavers, it's still handmade, but it's handmade by a team of other, you know, of other people whom she credits. Um, but, but it's been sold in a gallery and it's way too, no one's going to use that carpet as a carpet unless they're the most obnoxious oligarch who's got money to burn. I mean, who's going to use that carpet as a carpet? It's, it's a work of art. You have to look after it, I guess, like you look after a Rudolph Stingle uh, well, if you, had, if you had an antique Navajo carpet, you wouldn't put it on the floor either. You would put okay, it, you know, but then it's, it then it's an artifact. But, mm. um... Well, this still raises the question, which is why I think we're um, having this pleasant set to, um, of where exactly the design factor rests with those, those um, um, sets of practices, I choose to say rather than those objects. She is identifying with sets of practices, but not exactly inhabiting them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where our conversation is yes. located. Well, let's, let's, let's ask a question. Let's ask a new question. Let me ask a new question, if I may, and simply as this. Uh, is, is the opposite of the sum being greater than the individual parts? I mean, the, it seems to me that the sum isn't only greater than the individual parts, but the individual parts are not even a DNA of the totality. The totality gives us a, a sensation and um, provokes some thoughts. But um, are those sensations and thoughts sustained and do they evolve and develop when we look from object to object within this show? Or is this just a collective package, mm -hmm. uh, a, a one, a single okay. statement? Yeah. Which might, yeah. funnily enough, be... you can. You know, hold that question for when we talk about Richter. It might well be uh, the same question to ask there. But let's stick with Zetel. Is are there Roberta uh, individual pieces that you wanted to return to um, uh, in particular, or did you just think, okay, it's one package, or, um, and I'll assess it as one package? Well, there was a there was a way that the, the contrasting mediums and works of art kind of ta taught you about how they were to be used or p possibilities for use, but for me, it was much too much the same thing. And in some ways, just in terms of being in that room and looking at things, I sort of liked the, the piece on the, the carpet. And I actually, just because, I don't know, maybe it's because they were shiny. <laughs> and they had a bit of sparkle. But, I, but those big billboard paintings, which looked like Sheeler, really, 
were sort of nice, you know. Correct, correct. Yes. And the fact that they were on plywood was a relief, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And rigid. Rigid, yeah. 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 I mean, the one yeah. that came out from yeah. the wall yeah. was, was yeah. fun. Um, it was all fun, and there's I nothing, I, I certainly wouldn't in the second get hot under oh, oh. collar about any of it. But, um, Ariella, it's, it seems a curious um, phenomenon, right? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I felt that, you know, you could look at the individual pieces and you had kind of a lukewarm reaction to them. And when you saw the thing together, it, it brought in the, con- the conceptual dimension, which you sort of don't think about when you're just looking at one. Like, if you just saw one, you'd think, oh, that's a nice shirt or whatever. Right. Maybe, you, you know, you wouldn't think of it. When you see them all together, you think it's sort of a Duchampian exercise because it's kind of about context. And, you know, does the context turn this shirt into uh, a museum-worthy object, or is it just a shirt? And, you know, you had to go back and forth thinking about... It, 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 together, you, you, you know, it becomes a conceptual experiment. Yes. But in isolation, I don't think that the works really do that. I, I just find that she's a, a way more substantial artist when she is creating those uh, sort of trailer things, those, those uh, uh, wacky... Because they're... they're they, they just unleash narrative. And you can't just, uh, you don't just look at, I'm talking about those, um, they're like, uh, what do you call them? Uh, uh, jet stream type things. Campers. Or, or campers. Um, I hate and, those things. But <laughs> love them or hate them, it seems to me, you look, I look at them and I'm immediately into and constructing my own narratives that go with them. I have mm-hmm. a rapport. They have a sculptural presence. They have, mm-hmm. they have space. They have um, mm-hmm. dimensionality. And also they... they um, they, they can't simply be used, but they promote, they provoke ideas of how you could craft something else that you would use. But they, they also have an autobiographical quality that these don't have. I mean, you always picture her using those things. Like, she built them for her, you know, when she had a really small apartment, she needed, you know, one thing, then her needs changed, and she evolved another thing, and... Now you're talking about the really early ones. David's talking about something that's more kind of surreal. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, but even so, I mean, I I can't remember when the last, the last one I'm thinking of. But they, they were sort of, they they grew out of her own needs, the way her clothes, you know, do. And Mm -hmm. then, and this felt much more detached from her autobiography, from her personal life. It felt more um, hollow somehow. Mm -hmm. Of her, from her, you know, they just weren't visual enough. Yeah, I mean, from in a way, I thought it was completely about her lifestyle and living out there in the desert and yeah. figuring out things. And, um, mm-hmm. but but you know, I, I I think ultimately the the distinction between, I mean, we've all been around design objects that have the power of art. Yes, and we've been around garments that have the power of art. Right, and there's. You know, they didn't really measure up. Yeah, I agree. Yes. Mm-hmm. Conceptual, yes. you know, whatever or yeah. not. Well, we've all had better pad thai than Rhea Grit, Tiravanit, <laughs> cooks for us as well. Um, anyhow, um, as I said, I, one could almost ask um, the same question, and so I will, of uh, Richter's show that asks of um, Andrea Zittel's uh, uh, the sum too exponentially greater than the individual parts. Um, what on earth are we to make of Gerhard, Rick, Gerhard Richter's strips? Parentheses, 
what do we make of Gerhard Richter, period. But um, rather than deal with Gerhard Richter, period, um, but nonetheless to bear in mind that this is a rather good moment to be seeing Gerhard Richter's latest experiment because several classic examples of his uh, pop work hang with, with Warhol and regarding Warhol at the Met. Um, it's, it seems to me, well, um, Ariella, let me, let me uh, start with you on this occasion. <laughs> Richter, what do you make of his strips? I thought the big ones, when you first come into the gallery, the square ones, were pretty amazing. Um, I mean, well, at first I, I didn't, and then, and then I, I walked close to them, and I kind of let them en envelop me and kind of vibrate around me. And I thought for something that's digital, that's kind of like a digital screen, you know, a t television, um, they had this kind of amazing painterly quality, and they seemed to me like the sort of apotheosis of digital art because you couldn't do those things by hand. You, they had to be done the way they were done, and the sort of the detail and the precision of them, and then the hugeness of them, um, I found really cool and and, and exciting. All right. <laughs> Um, cool and exciting, Marjorie? Yeah. Oh, not for me. <laughs> so here goes. I might be sent to the gulag for my comments, but I'm used to it. Um, this is my orientation. Um, when I think of Gerard Richter, I do not think of him as a conceptual artist at all, but he's in the slipstream of a 60-year-old pop art movement whose delta we are witnessing. Sentence one. Sentence two. Who's what? Wit. Wait, no, I, I am, I'm on it, so hold on a minute. Um, he has never been interested in subject matter. He's always been blasé to subject matter and always been dedicated to technique, different techniques, especially photographically derived techniques that would defamiliarize painting in a way that actually, I may be off base historically in my associations, but not in the thought, I believe. Even Frederick Schiller would understand. That is to say, if you, you can't experience something directly anymore, you're no longer a naive relative to sense data. You are, perforce, a sentimental artist or poet for whom you can only look back at that which would have been a direct experience through a mediated experience. That's where he's strong, or used to be, circa 1968 and 70 with the townscapes. And um, with, in a very different kind of practice, the atlas. Now, that's, that was my headset walking in. So when I see this, that's digital, I, and, but, but has no has no dis, has no inclination to make to articulate as a townscapes does the technology and the technique that would be foreign to the painting but would somehow um, uh, create a distancing effect within a painting when I see none of that 
the, <laughs> the first and last thought I had yeah. actually was really he hasn't thought enough about the implications of digitalization and media and what and and how that changes the game for him right. that's my speech well uh Solowit gave us his uh, sentences uh, on conceptual art there are some sentences against conceptual painting or at least his um so roberta um could marjorie just say all that again and we could like <laughs> <laughs> wow brilliantly put superb marvelous and i can tell you she's not reading those notes that was that was, that was no, I'm completely from impressed. a rather I was, I've been thinking. No, I've been. You've been thinking about it. You're I've allowed been, to think. That's fine. We, we don't. We don't. It'll that, never but, happen uh, again. But uh, <laughs> a Worthing Dervish moment. Yes, Roberta. Best op art I've ever seen. Best op art. Right. Right. Because uh, if the only kind Kenneth, of apotheosis if of only Bridget Riley had uh, digital technology, she would have done it. You say. You think perhaps. I don't know. I mean, I, I think the way those things are generated, you know, Richter, I have tremendous respect for Richter. I love some of his things, and I don't, some of them are the imagistic ones, and some of them are the, are the abstract ones. Mm -hmm. I find he's, in a way, a very cold artist. I mean, I know that oh, isn't true, yeah. but, he, but it often strikes me as cold. Why is it not true? Because I just don't think you spend I need your... To, I need to put a mink coat on when I see his work. I, I just don't think you make, I don't know. I think there's something there, you know. I, I wouldn't presume to say that. Um, Surely you take but, the temperature. But, but, but here the coldness is just sort of overwhelming. Yes. And, and I just went back and forth. I mean, at a, at a certain point I, I said elsewhere in, in a conversation I was having in the Times with, with other critics, like, it's like, are these paintings or is this fancy Formica? You know, I just, and, and I think that the, the kind of, the way they leave you hanging there was actually a kind of an interesting experience in that, that they were so perfect, and they were they were very retinal for me. Mm -hmm. They had a real retinal effect, and then I would kind of back off, and they would just look like wallpaper yeah. or psychedelic or wallpaper. Yeah, and and mm. and it and um, it's not totally digital. I don't quite understand the technique, but he's actually doing arranging some of these things by hand, right? But then he prints them out, and then they're printed. Put them printed. Yeah, out. they're they're printed it's very in an inkjet printer. Yeah. He, he, he's sort of having his cake and eating it because rather like his um, windows in Cologne Cathedral that made a, a big brouhaha about being digital, he then said, well, uh, he didn't really quite like the way it looked digital, so he rearranged some of them uh, afterwards. So it's, uh, uh, you know, but then his, it, it seems to me uh, he, he is supreme. I mean, when you take the temperature of an artist, I, I, you don't need to have the artist's present to, to, to examine him psychoanalytically or anything. It's the work that uh, you put the, you stick the thermometer into and, 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 you, and you are the thermometer. And so when I look at Gerhard Richter, um, they're invariably freezing cold and they uh, are often, they're usually at a certain level incredibly clever. It can be a technical level that they're clever and it can be uh, um, a philosophical level, level at which they're clever and their cleverness is like the antifreeze in them, uh, or not the antifreeze, but the cleverness is is the thing that keeps it, helps it get really cold. Um, the opposite of antifreeze. So, uh, you know, I mean, this, yeah, you say it's supremely retinal. Well, yeah, I, I actually saw them just after I went for an eye exam. So <laughs> I, I was in, 
uh, and I got worried that something had gone wrong with the prescription because you can't actually focus on the individual lines. Now that's so there are the best Deborah artists, as Roberta says, they are um, asking very clever questions because when you look at, say, Kenneth Nolan stripe painting, however finessed it is, you still see the weave, you still sense the paint, and he actually wanted you, or he tolerated it. So therefore, whether he wanted to or not, one does. Um, and so here we have something where, you know, it's a whole gallery of image after image after image spun from the same original image, uh, variant after variant. Um, sure, incredible decor, sure, incredible technology, um, but you can't, th th this, this, this throwing something at you that's supremely decorative and not allowing it to work decoratively is just one mean, cold, cold hard, conceptual exercise. It's retinal, but it's anti-retinal. I think that you're right. I mean, I totally agree with you that they're cold, but I think that the thing about his work, because I also go back and forth about it, and there are some things that I really dislike and some that I really like, but I think that the indifference and the coldness of them is sort of more operates as a shield than as a totality. In other words, you know, you feel like he's holding back. Like he said, you know, I believe in nothing. I live in a post-ideological world. I survived, you know, Nazism and communism, and I believe in nothing. And all of this sort of hard stuff that he says, and the work mm -hmm. is so hard. But you sort of feel when you go into an exhibit like that where the colors are so rich and there's this kind of oozing feeling behind the the wall, and I think he, he works really, really hard to project that indifference that you're talking about, but I think it's work. I don't think it's necessarily at the core of who he is, but it's, it's, it, it's a kind of way of distancing you from him. And from There's him. a lot of bright color, uh, Margie, but is it rich color? Can color be rich inherently, or does it have to have an organizing principle that makes it rich for us? Um, I'm going to recuse myself from the question, unless I can, no, I mean it, because I don't, unless I can put another question. Yes, do. Um, I think that the paintings are the after effect, or the epiphenomenon, however beautiful or not beautiful, I didn't find them particularly beautiful, I found them derivative and tedious, uh, culturally of about 16 different things. Um, I, but were they pretty to look at? Yes, but that's irrelevant. Um, I, f I find them the after effect of a technique and process, which is where his, in, his attention is really placed and where, if I can say so, the content is the technique. And the reason why I insisted on that is that I expected to see that disarticulation of painting and photography in a more knowing combination than I did. I thought he was being opportunistic and using digital technology and not really moving off the dime concerning what a painting is. So I'm not addressing color. Um, so, Andrea, does it matter whether we class these objects as photographs or paintings? You're talking to me? Roberta, yes. What do I call you? Sorry. Andrea. Andrea, right. 
<laughs> Say that again. Well, you've been on so many panels with Andrew Scott, so I always used to get it. That's what. You're just digging yourself in deeper. <laughs> just say your question again. Uh, first of all, I'm sorry. No, that's to okay. Uh, if I'd said Michael, you could be offended, but Andrea is just a, a slip, slip of the tongue, right? Uh, my question is: A, are these paintings or photographs, and B, does it matter? Uh. And C, ignore the question and just say something <laughs> if you prefer. I don't. I'm not sure that it matters. I sort of agree with with uh, Marjorie that he could have done more with it. Um, I was interested in the way he used the computer. The whole process of blurring. Like, it was another way to blur an image, and in fact, it was a blur of, of a first painting. You know, the painting right. that's a, a much earlier. Look at that book, Patterns. Yes, but and but that's that's but that's sort of a, a conceptual thing. But that was both inside and outside the frame of the show. In other words, that pattern book, one would have had to know that. Yeah. Okay. Totally. Okay. But surely, even just seeing the PowerPoint, one could see that it, it was just one flipped and flipped and flipped. And, and varied that it's it's um, it's and, and to generate new hybrids, but basically it's the same I, format. I, I don't agree. I don't agree with you because I feel like the scale of the, some of them is is intrinsic to their power. I mean, the smaller ones don't really do anything for me. Right. The 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 ones that Long, were framed, yes. but the ones that were really big. Um, were created an environment around them that you could sort of walk into and that kind of pulsed at you and enveloped you. And it reminded me of um, Alan, Ka pronounce it, Capro, Capro? Capro. Writing about Jackson Pollock, the way that his work sort of created the space around them. And I felt that these sort of did that in a totally, you know, in a kind of all over way without any kind of composition, you know. Mm. Um, and that they worked in a way that the smaller ones didn't. The smaller ones left me totally. Okay, you're comparing the bigger ones to the smaller ones. But yeah. what I'm saying when it comes to generating images is that within each format, uh, it's the same information that's scrambled to produce different configurations. Would you be able to say that you had a different uh, quality of sensation or experience with... Uh, number three from that series, or number four, or number five. Yes. That one was had a bit more green in it, made you feel envious, or one that had a bit more red in it. You could say that was about all paintings. They all come from the same colors. <laughs> you know. But these are. This isn't about colors. David, these... you really don't like them. We get it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I wish. I, would, I want the panel to analyze them, whether whether one likes them or not. Um, okay. Well, you're doing a really good job. So. Well, we're all paid to do a good job. We have to. <laughs> we're, we're, Fellini says you're as good as your last I, movie. We're as good as our last review. I so. think you've, it sounds like you've never liked his work, and you weren't about to start with these. <clears throat> uh, my feeling, actually, is I, uh, it's, with Richter, it's, for me, is like cats. Uh, not the artist, <laughs> but the uh, breed. Um, uh, but uh, basically, um, I see the appeal of them, 
and I love them. Uh, I'd like to love them, uh, but I have an allergy. And so, uh, and then sometimes you see ones where you can live with them. For instance, I love, you know, anything with his daughter smudged and looking the wrong way. Gorgeous. Yes, it's not quite Vermeer, but it's lovely. And, and you know, and then there are Richters that I'm really glad exist. I think the Bader-Meinhof are among the most significant history paintings of the century. If he, you know, an artist can, you can just take one work or series. If it's great enough, you'd say, okay, whatever else he did wrong, he's okay because of this. And I'd say with the Bader-Meinhof group, yeah, because of that, he's, he deserves a spot in the canon. But his, it's his overall project. And this is the utter epitome of his, I think, his hatred of painting. <laughs> when you saw the movie, have you ever seen a painter who's literally stuck? I mean, he's trying to drag that squeegee across this, the, the, the canvas, and he literally physically gets stuck. I mean, we've all known artists who are stuck, but he was stuck. It was hard to do. Okay. I, I think, I don't know, I don't agree with you. And I don't, I think that if you, you know, there's, there's just a kind of relentless ambition in his work, and he just keeps going, and he has lots of ideas and lots of different kinds of paintings, and you just can't pick out one thing and say that was good. I mean, I can't. Right. You know, I certainly can go up and down with it. He's not my favorite painter. I wouldn't, I, I can't imagine, well, I could, ima I could live with some of them, but I couldn't live with these. And, and that's, that's the thing that I come back to, is who actually could, would live with these? these are, they seem to me like a form of public art, you know, and that they, that they belong in a lobby. Yeah, I, I agree with you. But I, I do think one of the things that's really interesting about him is that he tries to find all of these ways to refuse you. Like, he most negative person. Like, he's always trying to find a way to keep you out. You know, it's like he does ab abstraction, abstract expressionist, but it's not really expressive. He does, you know photography but it's all blurred so you can't see what you're supposed to be looking at I mean it's always about blocking you you know and mm. and, and I think it's interesting the number of ways he's found to do that yes. Yes. <laughs> it's, like, yes. it's sort of a Beckett like project of here's another negation. way of making you not enjoy painting <laughs> okay Marjorie I, I think it'd be a good moment now to bring in our, our audience Unless, was there something? Nope. Uh, there's, uh, I'd like to separate the discussions. So let's start, because we just discussed him, with Richter. Unless there's some actual comparison between Richter and Zittel that you particularly want to make, let's have some minutes first of talking about um, Gerhard Richter and, and carrying on our conversation. Uh, please wait until you receive the mic before you begin to speak. Okay? Uh, Richter, yes, gentlemen. Yes, uh, Karen. I just wondered if you would address uh, sculpture, which, which also played oh, a yeah. prominent factor. Yes, we failed to mention the sculpture, the, uh, the, the glass piece. Um. Uh, well, um, a lot depends on one's knowing the oeuvre, the, the trajectory. If one does, one, then one knows the script about seeing through, at, on, or not being able to, for which that is 
was a decent piece. It was not one of my favorites of his, though. I mean, he has done uh, his gray paintings, for me, carry that sometimes better than the glass pieces do. I would, I'm not going to go in the direction, I'm just going to mention, I'm very particular about which Richters I think are, have it, you know, have that combination of the technique that estranges uh, um, painting and, and how that's working. I think some of these things do and some don't. Uh, anyone else on the sculpture? No. Okay. Um, I was really taken with uh, Ariella's Budik's, uh, Budik's uh, analysis of Richter about how he keeps people out and he's finding strategies over and over again in any number of his parts of his oeuvre to do that. Uh, it seems to me that um, he's an inveterate German also in the sense that he's totally dedicated to the neoclassical aesthetic of German art in many ways. Uh, and uh, he's also about alienation. Um, and since alienation is such a large cultural component within uh, contemporary culture, it seems to me that he may be uh, moving into speaking about that as well, so that we become, become aware of our own alienation as we look at his work. Thanks. I agree with you. I mean, yeah. I... <laughs> Nicely put. Donald Linden, a contributor to Art Critical. Thank you. Uh, another comment on Richter, perhaps? Yes? Um, Put your hand right up in the air if you would like to speak, so we can bring you the mic. And it's such an intelligent audience, he must have bursting for things to say. Come on. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, if you're not, um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's move to Andrea, uh, Andrea or uh, Richter. 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 I didn't like it at all. And I thought of fashion a lot. Yeah. Do you not like fashion? I like fashion, but, he li but I thought that uh, why should do something like that? Right, right. Missoni. Missoni, yes, he should team up with Missoni. No, no, fashion. We're all eccentric. Okay. Okay. Thank you. You didn't like them. You do like fashion, and they reminded you of fashion. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, yes. Um, two members of the panel used the word blur, and when I saw this show in London, the giant show, um, that was the word that came forward amongst the people with whom I was looking, almost every aspect of this diverse kind of work, be it the abstract expressionist stuff or the photorealism stuff, those squeegees, the glass, it's a way of, yes, keeping the viewer out. He doesn't want to give away a thing and never has. And I've looked at catalogs of his work 
from the 60s in Germany amongst all his fellow great German artists that we know of. And as I went from one great name to the other, you got to his. It was the least interesting by a very long shot. And in my view, it remains like that. I think he is cold as cold can be. He doesn't want you to know a thing. And when I looked at the show at the drawing center of those works on paper, and I said to Brett Littman, I mean, that is a medium where maybe just a little bit of the guy comes through. I said to Brett, I don't know anything more about him now than I did before. And he said, Eddie, he doesn't want you to. And I've lived with a lot of the work, and I still do, and it's pretty blocked. Um, there are things, those photorealist things are, can be pretty remarkable, especially the super early ones. And I think the works at the, at the pop show with the Warhol look fabulous. But they are cold, and I felt, talking about the temperature, David, the Warhol is warm. It's cool. He's got a sense of humor. Gerhard is really cold. Okay, thank you. I'm not sure, however, that making blur one subject necessarily handicaps the painting per se. One could make interesting uh, and warm and uh, um, empathetic painting that's blurred, as, uh, as many people have and done, do. But uh, good, but thank you. Yes? Uh, just one comment. When I first saw the Bader-Meinhof group, it was at Porticus in Frankfurt, and I didn't know what it was. And I just walked in and I thought, oh, Richter Show, cool. He's doing a little abstraction, clearly some figural things. And as I left, I asked the man at the desk, what, what is this show about? And he said, well, you should read about it, sir. And so I started to read about it. And all of a sudden, abstract paintings became funerals. And uh, I started to see the show in a completely different way. And that kind of perceptual shift was a really kind of magic moment. And that, so I, he may not like painting. David, but I think he likes painters because he uh, allowed us a lot of breadth at that very moment. He allowed painters to be conceptual, showed a way we could be conceptual. These strips have none of that. Yeah, there's no shift there. Okay, well, um, perhaps we'll all trundle off uh, end of next week to see um, the exhibition Conceptual Painting at Hunter College that Pepe Carmel and um, uh, Joachim Pizarro are curating, and it's an American group, but perhaps uh, perhaps Richter will come into a new perspective as a result of seeing that show. Let's turn our attention now, audience, to Andrea Zettel. Any comments to share with us on Zettel? Were we too dismissive, or did we miss some great link between uh, this body of work and earlier bodies of work we might have liked more from her, or is there something vital that we're not grasping on the subject of uh, the decorative, the applied, etc. Okay, well, uh, speak now, if I have all hold your peace. Good, let's dim the lights and let's see part two of, let's see the part slides for part two. So, Monette Larson, I think we, we have broken our own rules here, of which I don't apologize, because this is a show I'd love to hear our panel talk about. But um, we we're very, try to be very strict about 
the show has been up for a certain length of time and um, at least a couple of weeks before we open, we have our discussion and it remains open today and tomorrow. Uh, unusually, this exhibition uh, presents itself in three chapters. Uh, it's uh, a small gallery and it's uh, an artist with um, a lot of work that they wanted to share with their public. So the um, show is in three parts, it has three chapters, and um, we have perhaps been able to see parts, either part one or part two. Part two opened uh, last night. Um, and so we're going to have to um, possibly reference pieces that are no longer up if you went to see the show today, or if you went and saw the show any time up till uh, earlier this week. You may have missed part two, and we've all uh, yet to see part three. So um, it's a, a sacrifice worth making to, to address this, this artist with a rather particular and unusual sensibility. Um, would you not agree, Marjorie? Um, <clears throat> one um, point of entry for me um, was that it reminded me of pedagogical exercises in both a good and bad sense that someone who is fascinated by perspective systems of different sorts, some suitable for working drawings and others for shall we say, what the cosmos might look like if made into a fiction. How the pedagogue becomes fascinated through the need to explain these things to her students, to pursue them as worlds, and then to make paintings, or at least in this case, I wouldn't call them paintings, but draftsmanship out of them. So I began thinking with the problem in a constructive way, I hope. Which of these are exercises and which of these are images or events? Right, yes, another, another intriguing hybrid then of, of uh, genre. Um, Roberta, does, is, the, is the pedagogic um, the, the thing that comes strike, is most striking to you about these works or did you, did you, what sort of experience of them did you have? Well, my thought about them was that in another decade we would have called them a, a form of regionalism. Regionalism? Yeah, that when, when I was first in the art world, there were a lot of artists that I think are really good that we used to call regional. Right. They were usually from Chicago or San Francisco. And they included Jim Nutt, Roy DeForest, Peter Saul, and... Uh, there's a similar thing here where you feel that it's a little, I mean, I, I don't think she's up to the level of these artists, uh, although I do, I, I find it interesting to think about her and not a little bit. And um, that there's a, there is a kind of rigidity to them, to her paintings, and the idea of a system or of a style that you just wish it would relax a little bit. Uh, but the I don't know, the idea that this person has just been making these, I don't know how long she's been actually making these paintings, because there were two that were sort of 
toward the end that were sort of like Dorothea Rockbirds from the they were from the '90s. So I don't know how long the style has actually been in place. But I will say that I've seen both the shows, and the second show, which just opened last night, I felt was much better mm-hmm. than the first one, mm-hmm. and and that they all had to do with the, that the heads aren't as interesting as these different kinds of figural scenes. She's looking at Sienese painting. She's looking at cartoon. She's looking at at Russian constructivism, and she's trying to, and she's making this, it is a kind of world out of it, mm-hmm. and um, I just found them very, I, I do think they're paintings. They are kind of carpentered in the way the surfaces alter from shape to shape, and sometimes they look like linoleum, and sometimes they get very brushy, and and I, I, I don't know, I enjoyed them. I just thought it's not a, it's not big, but it's very distinct, and it has a kind of integrity, and it has a vision, and that's that's it achieves something that you want art to achieve. It's made by it's one person making it, and 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 saying what she wants to say. Right. Yeah. So Ariella, with one response there that that focuses on the intellectual inquiry and the. Um, uh, the, the lang- looks at the language from a point of view primarily of, of perspective, but then brings that into creating a fiction of the world. And then we've had another response that starts with the, the funkiness and eccentricity of the imagery, but then came round to where the first comment started with, um, with, with, with the idea of, of fictions, of building a world. Um, what was your response to the show, and did it, did, did it primarily have to do with um, form content? I, when I first looked at them from it, I didn't see the first show. I only saw the second one. I didn't realize there were two different ones. So I, um, when I first walked in, looking at them from a distance, or even in reproduction, you can't really get a sense of what they're like because they are so much about texture. And um, I had to take my glasses off and sort of look at them, you know, <laughs> because there are these things that are pasted on that you can't, you know, you can't see from a distance. They look much flatter um, in reproduction than they, and even, you know, I mean, you have to stand sort of almost like this mm-hmm. to kind of see them. And when you do, they kind of reveal themselves, I felt, the, the, the way that the, there's like an ice cream sundae that's, sort of brushed on and then right next to it is something very hard-edged and then there's a section that's really opaque and then there's a section that's kind of transparent and all of those things you don't see from from far away and as in the more you look at them and the more you sort of home in on them um the more i think they they come alive yeah well those are three very different ways of looking at this one body of painting and that's that to me is almost a vindication of the richness and complexity, that one person can come at them as cartoony, funky images, another person can think of them in terms of uh, Renaissance perspective or fascination with perspective um, and with um, a kind of almost mathematical, uh, one com- uh, we've, got, we've got narrative, disegno, colorito in the three responses to that uh, uh, group of works. I feel now I'm on the spot to come up with a fourth way of reading them. Uh, but I will take the um, uh, coward's route of offering a fusion of two that we've had already. And to me, that uh, uh, they, it's, it, Roberta talked about 
regional uh, painting in terms of not being of the, the New York uh, moment, to me they, um, uh, they almost belong to a different century and yet are very current and relevant, it seemed to me, that um, they uh, really do have the energy of uh, Renaissance painting in that way of uh, at, at one and the same time um, having the liberty to create a new world and um, being so open to um, really thorough investigation of, of methods that would actually make it, make it real, make it a meaningful creation of a world. It seems to me that the levels of inquiry in these works are both um, art historical and, um, for want of a better word, mathematical. Uh, she, she's, she's about extreme perspective and actually following through a logic of a bizarre extreme of perspective. But she's also about really looking at and thinking about Asian art and, 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 and the whole different language of space, in particularly in Chinese and Japanese um, painting. So to me, these are heartfelt and intelligent in, 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 in equal measure in a degree that is rare in painting today. Um, that's what I like about them, um, which is plenty, I think, to like about them. Um, they are damn weird, though. <laughs> well, the eyes, if you look at all the eyes, the different eyes that she does, they're all, each set is different, so they really are, they're these kind of blocky figures, and then, and they kind of all look alike, but then the eyes are all different. Sometimes they're cut yeah. out, and sometimes they're Yeah, there's a, and there's a similar kind of uh, variety of body language in a way that you don't quite think is, mm -hmm. where they just differentiate themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I found them really interesting, just the surfaces, the kind well, of especially variety, the, and the, the, really the idea of fold, the way she kind of folds space by these weird jumps in scale, which is what I guess you must mean by the Chinese. Yes, yes, in that one in the latest show about the uh, mall event, where you have um, a, 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 a weird, uh, almost alienating kind of oh, right. mottled black and white uh, textured uh, right. rectangle, and uh, it's almost like trying to get your um, focus right on the Richter. With the, in this yeah. case, you can't decide whether it is uh, uh, in in plane or relief. You can't decide whether it's um, a space that's below that parapet or whether it's actually part of the parapet. And there's a uh, figure standing there. Everything seems to be going on the diagonal. There's a figure standing there. And then there's another figure here who, mm -hmm. is, who is in a completely different space and actually seems to be standing on the frame of the painting. Yes. Like, it's very <laughs> peculiar. And, and also, like Renaissance painting, um, we, we have uh, a strangely alienated perspective on Renaissance painting because it's, it's way, way back in the past, so it feels beautifully old and mystical, and uh, we think of it, but at the same, but we still can sense when we look at it, um, the explosive revolutionary energy that this is coming, this is a break from um, centuries of Byzantine and medieval art, and this is art that's empowered to Empowered to, to describe empirically and to find a logic to do so. 
Yeah, but I think I well, I said Sienese. Yes. But I think that there's a very ab strong abstract component. I, I think that Renaissance is too big a term because she's right. not at all. She's not involved with illusion. I mean, she is involved with perspective. Mm -hmm. But I think more than one point. Um, <clears throat> she's manipulating at least three kinds of perspectives, though not in every work. Um, parallel perspective of some variety or other, whether it's orthogonal or, or some sort of pictorial version of that, which is particularly amenable to working drawings in which you have to see everything, whether or not <clears throat> the work coheres in other respects. And reverse perspective, which she sometimes flips, so that um, in some of the works, you're looking up from under um, in combination with a margin that may be in parallel perspective. Um, and then in some of the works I believe working best, from my point of view, is that very forgiving atmospheric perspective, uh, which we all are grateful for because that's dream time. It allows the amalgamation of different narratives and different rates of change from the historical to the mythological within a work. And who doesn't need that, I'd like to know. <laughs> so she's, so the one that had to do with Poussin, I think, was one of the ones that wasn't perfect. It was a little awkward, but it worked, it worked like, um, and now I'm going to forget the filmmaker's name. Uh, it's too bad. Bresson, I think, who did, um, who redid some of the medieval folk tales in in film by showing flats, but with real horses, with with actors riding on a real horse in front of flats. I was thinking as I was looking at the work, maybe she should make more direct use of simple overlap mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. to explain the inexplicable rather than, as you were indicating, there's a certain kind of doggedness which is very touching, but it is, it, it reduces rather than augments some of her work, to my view, in which she is, in which the scheme is worked out even through the bodies such that um, um, uh, the thing becomes an, uh, an incident or an, or an anecdote rather than an event of dream time or something. And I was thinking to myself, maybe she could somehow fudge, um, as she was willing to do in some others, by bringing in some of these other perspectival things and, and relieve her of the pressure to make everything conform in certain ways. Maybe. I, I, I found my response a bit like... Um, very clever music where the experts tell you that the composer's doing X, Y, or Z, or if it's a piece of avant-garde music, the program notes tell you that, uh, that he or she followed this strategy and, and, and subjected the work to this, um, uh, these rules. And I'm looking at them, I, I listen to the music, I, I'm no, I don't know anything about those rules, I just like the music. And sometimes with, this, with these works, the perspective, um, it's... it's it's way above my head. I mean, I, I, I never learned to draw correctly so to, 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 to have to actually master those uh, ideas of perspective. And I, I always kind of fell asleep when we were being taught about perspective in the Renaissance. So, and yet I just look at the images and like them. But I like the energy that's in them that could only be there 
because she's subjecting them to these kind of uh, rules. Um, Ariella, I was moved by your description um, of the, the tactile up-close surface. Um, does that mean that perhaps, like me, you, you're not quite with the perspectives or, or the, the games being played with perspective? No, I, I wasn't that... I also, like you, I, I don't know the rules and the, I didn't know what she was doing exactly. Um, but I, I was more, I was more, I mean, apart from the surface, I was sort of caught up in the play between um, perspective, perspectival space and the flatness of um, Russian constructivism and how she kind of was playing between these two forms of, these two sort of abstractions one of which is sort of in deep space and one of which is totally flat and kind of going back and forth um, between those things. And I, I had sort of the voice of Greenberg in my head. I, I don't know why he was there um, saying, you know, she hasn't broken her ties with cubism. You know, she hasn't, you know, she's not sufficiently abstract. Like, I, 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 he was sort of there in my kind of hectoring me while I was in the show. And I, I, um, and I did sort of feel like there was something unresolved about her relationship to abstraction and her, you know, and, and yet it was totally eccentric and, and funky. I like that word because I, I think that's... She, she is somebody who was completely abstract um, and who then um, surprised when? herself until I believe the mid-90s, maybe. Oh, so this is um, kind of new. Newish, yes. I think this is uh, actually um, her, her dealers in the, in the audience, so he might... During question time, clarify that for us. Um, but uh, but yeah, this is somebody whose whose interest in illusion is abstract. So I think we I think picked up the right vibes from the work. Let's now look um, at let's now think about uh, rather our our last exhibition uh, sculptor uh, Diana Al Hadid, um, and uh, uh, as I've called on one panelist to launch us with each show, I think it's my turn. So, um, otherwise they will complain that they had to do two rather than when everyone else had to do one. Um, yeah, this is a sculptor I followed from the get-go. I, I actually met her when she was a student at Skowhegan and um, have been incredibly impressed by pretty much everything she does. Um, I think sculpture is a medium in many ways in more trouble than painting um, or any other medium in today's world. We seem to have lost, um, we seem to have lost, uh, well, there are great sculptors around for sure, but somehow sculpting, painting has this uh, energy to it, this the tradition, this ongoingness that's um, no amount, no number of people pronouncing that the painting is dead seems to get through, the message gets, doesn't seem to get through to painters. Uh, whereas, um, ironically, with sculpture being kind of venerated above painting at a certain moment, and at least the idea of the specific object and sculpture having an expanded field, in a funny way, the old um, craft traditions of modeling, of carving, and one could add to it, uh, welding, uh, a, a recent uh, addition, um, and, and producing an object, this is something that um, I think, uh, of course, we can all come up with a dozen or so people we love who are still doing it, but somehow it seems to me uh, a fraught activity or 
an endangered species. And so it's always, for me, incredibly refreshing to see a, somebody coming at sculpture with a new energy. Um, that said, um, that said, and now I find myself dug into a hole where I realize that um, much as I love these works in many ways and find them impressive and intriguing, um, I, my, actual, in, my actual response is somewhat mired in, in wondering how sculptural these actually really are. Um, there seems to be a lot of in, incredibly close craft work in them. There seems to me uh, a lot of local decisions that are moving and interesting. Uh, it seems to me that um, uh, they, are, uh, they, they excite emotion. Um, uh, uh, the dilemma I have is, to, is as to whether this is uh, an environment that has sculptural qualities or whether these are objects in the round that are, are kind of have a compelling unity about them. But um, general overall impression, a big, big two thumbs up. I know I'm the moderator, but somebody can jump in. You don't have to wait for an invitation. Who, who cares to agree, disagree, move on, give their response? I, I think I'll jump in. Uh, with something you said, I actually think these works flaunt anything but sculpture. I think they're very pictorial and on purpose, but with problems. Uh, that is to say, though they exist in actuality in our space, they're made up of uh, lines and planes in such a way as to deny the Western, and this is I th the hot link here, uh, the Western conception of what a sculpture is, namely that it's either volumetric and acknowledges that as such, or massive. This is fussy and complicated. It's a kind of confection of pic picto uh, pictorial tendencies. But this is where, for me, it what starts as supreme disappointment gets at least theoretically interesting. I don't see these as um, paintings, even scenographically derived. I see this as, yes, uh, conceptually tutored in such a way as to start with the, if not the Syrian, then the Islamic proposition that space is defined by courtyards and screens. And I actually think that that's, if that piece, if her pieces, which are not so successful, have any integrity, it's by starting from that position, that what is space is essentially a courtyard and walls that are penetrated owing to the need for, light, for ventilation. And I don't mean that these works are to be seen as architecture. I mean those are the, uh, shall we say, the structural propositions on one side and then postmodernism on the other in a kind of meltdown, literally, that I think she's weak at. But I think that when I saw the work, I thought that was what she was attempting or the work was attempting. I, I don't know if I've made myself clear at all. Ah, I think you've certainly been very rich and suggestive in those comments. Um, um, 
Roberta, does, does, does Marjorie's interpretation make sense here of your experience? It makes sense of her experience. <laughs> Yes. Oh, thank you. Doesn't make sense to start at all. <laughs> I found the show almost without redeeming qualities. Um, I do think it's better than her previous show because she stopped using recognizable buildings and tilting them around and doing different things. But basically, I found confection is a good word. My word would have been pastiche. That this this work has is a pastiche of of seventies process art. And it's very easy to unpack a lot of constituent elements and received ideas. And um, starting with Linda Benglis, um, the paintings of Larry Poons, for example. Um, does anybody remember an artist named Lauren Sold who used to pour milk and eggs and food coloring across the floor at 303? Well, if you imagine kind of trying to get that idea up off the floor as Richard Serra did to Carl Andre, you have, I mean, how, my, my mo most, you know, and, and then, and all else fails, throw in a nude or two, you know, which it just seemed completely contradictory and, and felt like, you know, she's still a young artist and she has a really kind of an interesting feeling for materials, but it's, I felt like she really needed to go back to the drawing board and kind of start again. Um, you know, if you, like there were different parts. That, the reason I mentioned Lauren Zold because there are actually a lot of puddles in those, a lot of plaster puddles that have been elevated. And I, I thought about, I mean, courtyards and screens was interesting. I thought about fountains, you know. Um, and um, I, I really, and then there were these really, you know, there was like fabric in there, kind of crumpled and tin foil. And, mm -hmm. and you sort of wanted to just take it all apart and say, you know, you've got about, eight different sculptures in here. Like, what's, what's the most important, what's really most important to you? Because it's not clear. And how they could ever survive, I mean, I can't imagine being able to own one. I mean, how, how are they even going to get out of there intact or in a way that could be reassembled? It just, I don't know. They just Why is that a problem? Who cares? We're, we're <laughs> there to see the show. The show is, it's the show that's under review. Uh, uh, it's it's a it's a functional commercial problem for someone else to worry about how you get. I don't know. Out. It's something I think about because I'm interested in art being owned. Right. I'm interested in. But in, I feel I own. I'm, it I'm tired there, of these I shows that are just like public events. You know, you walk in, you see an event, and you walk out, and it's uh, unless you're a billionaire, and you know, like that's with the with the Richters. Unless you're a billionaire and you have the most enormous house in Moscow or London or whatever, who's got a wall to put those on? And, and, and similarly, unless you have a certain kind of maintenance staff, mm. who's, who can... Uh, these seem to be very uh, tangential, <laughs> almost slightly bourgeois questions. Who cares? We, we've, got a, we've got a show up at the moment. Well, we can I'm go just... in, as long as Marianne Bosky is open, you can go in for free in a beautifully lit gallery and have an, a total aesthetic experience. Uh, you can stay from 10 in the morning till 6 at night and have aesthetic experience for... David, Four you have weeks. not looked at enough so, art in New York to so, like this So work. why does it matter if you, who you owns it at the end of it? You have not looked at enough art. These, are, these works are completely derivative. 
Um, you just can't. No, I, well, that, I, no, I that's, that's, you get that's, away that's, with that's, that's, that's this two kind of yeah. admiration no, you no, have no. for them because uh, it makes you sound ignorant. <laughs> it really uh, does. Ignorance is bliss, perhaps. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm taking issue with the second point made, which is, uh, which, well, which I, just, I don't want to dwell in too much because it well, seems so I'm minor. Just, I'm interested. Who cares about I, who owns well, it? I have actually put on a pet peeve that goes beyond this panel and beyond that show, which is just yes. the role of spectacle in art right now, and that 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 people are putting on shows. Yes. They're not actually making art. Mm -hmm. They're putting on shows. Well, they're putting on, they're making art, which is spectacular. Well, this is, I, mean, I, and, I agree with and you. And the idea that the... Oh, it is theatrical. The, art, the idea that you could, I, I really think making small paintings is one of the most radical things you can do right now. The idea that you could walk into a gallery, buy a painting, get in a cab with it, and take it back to your small apartment seems incredibly refreshing. <laughs> and I'm just kind of... Okay. You know, it's just it's just because it kind of would go counter to all the trends right now. Where, I mean, just think about what's on view in Soho right in Chelsea right now. So many enormous things, and these aren't even that enormous. I'm just look. Yeah. I'm okay. sorry. I'm cranky. But no, anyway, no, no, uh, no. We should have a panel just on that topic, but it would, I think, perhaps be a little unfair to Al Hadid to make. Right, but I do. I don't think it's bourgeois for me to think about how how these could be reconstructed and 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 exactly what what their lifespan is. You know, I mean, if you took a painting, say by a small painting by Richter or Mernet Larsen, home with you, and you put it on your mantelpiece, uh, you'd for the first week or two you'd, you'd look at it uh, for quite a bit. But the truth of the matter is, and you know, we but we all own pictures, and uh, the truth of the matter is that it, it, it could just settle into the wallpaper at a certain point. I mean, you do then... Look, I retract my, I retract but, my statement, okay? You don't have yeah. to address it. All right, okay, <laughs> good, right. But anyway, um, okay, dealing then perhaps... Okay, uh, Ariella, did you find that this was a, a show of objects that you coveted or a spectacle that you well, uh, savoured or didn't? I, I didn't savour it. I, I agree with Roberta. I mean, I, I actually... I really didn't like it, and I, I, uh, I mean, I, I didn't get into the, I couldn't even get into the, like, the, the mindset of it. Um, I just thought they were really ugly, and, and um, I thought the tinfoil was tacky, and I, I thought they looked like my grandmother's Rococo, like, Dresden lamp or something, like, like, poor, you know, I don't have much of depth to say about them, I, I, uh, but I do agree with, with everything Roberta said, so. <laughs> I mean, I think there's something there, but it needs yes. to be taken apart and really examined piece by piece, and to, there, it's just a lot of different things sort of stuck together. Oh, I do have one thing I want to say, Sean. Yes. Um, I was thinking about them, I did, they did make me think a little bit, because I, I was thinking, why does she have to prop them up with all of this, these references, like the lot, was it lot Pontormo, and you know this, and she took this thing from the the cape of some anonymous Prado painting. Like the whole logic of it made no sense to me. It just seemed like, oh, I need to be taken seriously, so I need to invoke some kind of art historical past because otherwise people are going to look at these and think, you know, what the hell is this? So. I've got to use, you know, I've got to reference um, antecedents, and I just thought that right. that was weak. Mm -hmm. so. Well, um, she's reading out of a playbook. That's 
my problem with the show. Uh, uh, it's very scripted, post, a certain kind of postmodernism. There are better uh, examples of it, which may be as irritating, but they're clearer. I want to put in a plug for at least some work by Osvaldo Romberg. Now that I've said that, I'll move back to this, in which citation, surfaces of citation, that is to say mere mentions rather than investigations, are very much part of the, a certain kind of postmodern idiom. I found the vocabulary very familiar. Um, what I had started to say was only by my way of thinking, where does she, why is she putting, she who can be, if anything, piss elegant in other respects, in other shows, why is this such a mess? And I was trying to get a vantage on that, and that's why I, I found to my satisfaction, not the show, but the cultural vantage from Islamic art, um, that which lightens, because it penetrates the wall, it lightens material and, and makes it available for spiritual engagement. That's a, that's a proposition in Islamic art. And I was thinking, what if she actually worked with the wall, just the wall, or just some screens? And I actually was imagining how I would give her a studio crit, which will never happen, obviously, um, in which I would redo the piece in, in line with certain intentions concerning Islamic art. Mm -hmm. I think that um, this is theatrical. I don't actually, however, accept uh, the F Michael Fried's um, um, dichotomy that one has to choose between um, theatricality and absorption and that somehow one will encapsulate uh, all that's wholesome and good about art and the other is uh, it would encapsulate all that's gone wrong with art. Um, yeah, look, these are not things that you're going to take home with you in a taxi. Um, these are, um, these do have a, a, a some, some sort of makeshift um, Dimension to them. They they do have a bit of the fun fair going on in them. I don't I don't see how I don't accept this logic that somehow um, an artist who makes process art doing one very particular process like pouring liquid on the ground um, has a monopoly or puts her his or her mark on that process uh, for all time henceforth. And any other artist who pours is referencing. Linda Bangless or something. No, I think that's a that's, very reductive formalism. Well, I think that one of the things you do when you look at any art is you, you think about, you're, you're sort of stuck with what pops up in your mind. What I found, for me, my experience was that I saw, I don't, I don't think anybody owns anything, but you have to do more with it that's convincing. It's clear she's trying to do something more with it. She's trying to make it vertical or, or screen-like or whatever else. But I just think that there were too many disparate parts and too many disparate sculptural ideas that I had seen, whether or not anybody owns them, I had seen them expressed more directly and more convincingly elsewhere. It's and it, be yeah. and it, became to, it came to seem extremely contrived, like she's got a lot of ideas and, and they haven't been sorted out. Like it would be really interesting just to go in there physically and like I said, take those works apart. Mm -hmm. Some of the details, some of the way she's using plaster and color, you know, they have all kinds of possibilities. Right. But they're just, it's just not, I mean. 
I, for me, she's, she's, that's why I brought up at the first saying, I didn't think they were, even though they were sculptural, they were not sculpture. And that's, um, I don't have a problem with them being temporary, funfairish, and uh, overloaded, um, uh, because that, to me, is their aesthetic. And um, so, uh, uh, but, but, but I, I, I think the thing that, I, that you said that I like most is that they reminded you of fountains. Uh, great, we don't get fountains. We don't get gates. There are, there are great, um, there are great um, uh, objects out in the world that were once uh, low-key for great sculptural inventions. So it seems to me that if somebody is making environments or installations or objects that, that do invoke those traditions, um, that's a plus. But I did have lots of caveats about local decisions, which I'm not going to now rehearse because it'll be, you know, um, I need to stick behind this, this work. Okay, well, let's have uh, some response briefly uh, to uh, the two shows. Let's start with, um, let's start with Manette Larson. Go, let's take our minds back to the, uh, the, the, the paintings of Manette Larson. Um, and um, uh, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do like three minutes on each. Um, Larson, uh, anybody want to say something about Larson? It would be lovely to hear some comments um, on, on that show if, if that's felt. It. Yes, thank you. But I think her, uh, her use, Murnette Larson's use of color is very distinctive and, um, and very special. Um, and as for, just back to the Richter for a moment, uh, I thought one of the hottest shows in many years was the drawing show at the drawing center of his drawings. Um, and Great. Okay. Uh, Manette Larson's color. Any more on perspective, on, on, on her being a regional artist, on her uh, channeling the Renaissance, either in uh, subject or in, or in the desire to create a world, uh, on her funkiness? Anybody wanting to offer a dissenting note? Manette Larson, going, going, gone. Uh, yes, another, yes. What is your reference to the Renaissance with regard to her work? I, I don't see it at all. Okay, um, I, I just felt the Renaissance uh, derives its energy from a willingness and a desire to create a picture of the world or the universe rather than to uh, follow um, an accepted pattern. But at the same time, uh, the Renaissance was, um, this is a, you know, a 101 sort of reduction of the Renaissance, but, it's, it's, but at the same time as that, uh, individualism and renewal, uh, there's, there's also an empiricism, a, a desire to uh, use particular systems to, to say what if or to explore a certain, a certain logic. So that's, that's, that was one uh, kind of Renaissance-ish, Renaissance-ism play in, in her work to my eye. 
Um, anybody else on Larson? Um, so then, how does the audience respond to this uh, somewhat heated debate then on, uh, well, not a debate, um, uh, this uh, three against one on, uh, on, on Diana Al-Hadid? Do we have, um, do you want someone want to make it four, five, or six against one? Or is there somebody who uh, uh, wants to put in a word for this work? Yes. Four to one, I'm afraid. But um, when you come into the gallery and you see the, I think it's called the Great Divide. Is that the wall piece? Mm -hmm. And I think that illustrates it very well. Uh, because when you approach it, it seems, I was, thought it was very mysterious. It was a grate, a screen, is it melting, is it aged, what, what's going on? And then you go around the wall and you see the figures and the dripping paint and it's head-smacking to me. It just turns into an illustration, it turns into surrealism of a very kind of sentimental sort. And she was constantly kind of tripping herself up in that way, but that was very kind of, you know, a set piece for me. Mm -hmm. And just to address what you said, Ms. Budik, um, if you went to Documento last summer, not all the, all the artists, not just a few, but all the artists had this backstory. Not just one level backstory, but like the French say, like centième degré, like three levels of backstory to the point where when the pieces are manifested visually, they almost can't transform anymore. They're so overdetermined. And I think that's a template for a lot of international art right now. Okay. Um, yes, lady uh, here. Yes. Um, when I saw the part about weight and those things are so big and massive, and because of the way she was doing those dripping, the way they were constructed, they felt light because you could see through it, you could feel the air. I really wanted to hear about that because it entered some sort of spirituality and during my sensation to the whole scene. I think, I think that was her intention. I don't know whether she pulled it off, but I think that was her intention. Yeah. To Larson, Manette Larson. Aha, yes. uh -huh. right. Um, and, and I, I found it yes, I, I buy that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Anybody like to make another comment on Diana Al-Hadid's show? Yes, uh, towards the back on the left, please. Sorry, use the mic, because we, we, we... I was struck by the drawings, and I noticed that no one mentioned them, and I thought mm -hmm. maybe comment on them. Uh, you mentioned them. Come on. <laughs> um, I thought they were, they had a, quite a presence and they were quite impressive with the graphite and the, the um, pastel or something. But. Right, right. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Yes, a lady towards the front here on the, on the right aisle. It's really a question when, and, and a statement at the same time, when fashion borrows from art, it gets substance, it gives it substance. 
when art borrows from fashion, we're looking at fabrics. And I don't know if it's because fashion is sort of always looking backwards. There hasn't been a new fabric since polar fleece, and fashion has sort of not gotten on the whole technological bandwagon. So it's always reinventing stuff and not looking fresh. So I think when artists dip their brush into the fashion pot, we don't get excitement. Uh, Roberta, what do you think? <laughs> That's. Um, I don't agree, but I, I, I sort of agree. I sort of agree with what you're saying generally in a certain way, but I just. Um, it's too much of a generalization for me. It sounds good. It did sound good, yes. Because <laughs> I, I, I really think anything is possible. Any artist can make any medium convincing. That's what artists do. And you can't just diagram that this is going to work and that's not going to work. Do you know? Because as soon as you say that, somebody's going to come along and prove you wrong. Let's say it. So they can prove us wrong. Okay. Excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. I'd just, like to, I'd just like to publicly apologize to David for the word ignorant. That was a little overboard, okay? So. Wow, I got, an, I got the apology from Roberta Smith. It's line one on my resume. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Roberta. I didn't take any offense.